And the rest of you take your Bibles and turn to 1 Kings. Failure and faithfulness, we are in 1 Kings 19 this morning. 1 Kings 19, our, our, our focal passages are really going to be uh, 5 through um, 18. Uh, hardest hit, 9 through 18. But I'm going to read the whole chapter this morning because we, we really need to get a run and start into what's going on. First, though, our memory verse. Let's all say it together. Lord God of, I don't even remember the first word. Huh? I know. Lord God of the first blank. Israel. Thank you. Have mercy. All right. Now I got it. Lord God of Israel, there is no God like you in heaven above or on earth below who keeps the gracious covenant with your servants who walk before you with all their heart. 1 Kings 8.23 See, I did okay once I got my brain to not be mush. All right, so uh, the, uh, if you haven't gotten your bookmark, it's up here. There's some in the back at the Connection Center if you need some help on, on memorization. Obviously, I do. 1 Kings 19. Such an interesting and yet thankfully wonderful chapter in the story of Elijah. Spiritual depression is the topic of the chapter, and that is a very, very real thing. Spiritual depression will most likely come on after a great achievement or victory. That's usually when it's going to hit, and that seems to be the dumbest time, and yet that is the most likely and most common. I, I have experienced it this, this month. Back in March, April, and May, we had the highest average worship attendance that we have had in three years. Exciting, woohoo, yes, great, wonderful. And then in uh, uh, at our, our revival services, we had uh, a full altar. We had uh, a fresh spirit among us talking to people afterwards. It was just wonderful. And, and we, we knew something great was happening. And yes, this is the fire has, has fallen. And then in June, we had the lowest offering we've seen in my six years here. Just, I mean, that quick. And that's the way spiritual depression works. Because, let's be honest, that's the way life works. It's great, and it's not. And it's great, and it's not. And it's kind of middling, and it's not. And it's not, and it's not. And it's middling, and maybe we got up sort of kind of good. And, 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 and so we are on this roller coaster ride. And then when we are serving a Lord who says and promises life abundant... And we go, where is the abundant life? I mean, I got the abundant misery. And we start singing the old song from Hee Haw. Gloom, despair, and agony on me. Good job, folks. Everybody 50 and older. Excellent. The rest of you are just going, what is he talking about? Deep, dark depression, excessive misery. I won't sing the whole thing. If it weren't for bad luck... 
I'd have no luck at all, gloom, despair, and agony on me. And that is where we find Elijah. And that is where we find ourselves often. Because we serve a wonderful God. We look at the James Webb, where's, I'm, I'm trying to motion to Lacey. We look at the, the James Webb telescope pictures and we go, have mercy what he has created. So why couldn't he have done this differently in my life last week? Or that differently in my life last month? Or on and on and on. Elijah's swing here is common. It's very common. It's very common among ministers. It's very common among anyone who is closely tied to the work that God is doing. Students, you're going to experience that. If, if camp was right, you're going to experience that after camp. You, you spend three, four, five, six days worshiping Bible study every day, not worshiping Bible study, worshiping comma Bible study every day with your peers and with leaders that are constantly giving you attention and you come home usually on a Saturday to have to cut the grass and clean your room if you didn't clean it before you left and get the clothes washed and and it's nobody's Nobody, there's no worship and, and there's no Bible study and, and the, you're getting some specialized attention, but it ain't the attention you've been getting all week. Spiritual depression. When we come to Elijah, we see that he's experiencing this spiritual depression because revival was what he expected. He has just been to the mountaintop. He has just seen the fire fall. The, the altar was full. It was full of dead Baal prophets, but it was full, and, and, and it was full of the Israelites coming back and saying, there's only one God, there's only one God. He was expecting nationwide revival, and he, instead he gets threats. Somebody at the palace has started a petition to get him killed. They only need 10 more signatures, and they can get him killed. Threats are received, and so he runs. The letdown of no long-term change after a mountaintop experience is crushing. You think, finally, this is the corner that's going to turn. And nobody turns the corner with you. Now let me be clear in what I'm talking about here. I'm talking about spiritual depression. So as I move through this passage and we talk about how we can overcome this depression, I am not talking about clinical depression. I am not all saying, well, if you just think better and read more scripture and pray more, you wouldn't be depressed. Because clinical depression is something different. Now, the one can exacerbate the other. If you're clinically depressed, your spiritual depression will likely be worse and vice versa. But... I'm not saying that prayer is going to fix a chemical imbalance. Do, our, your, your brain is an organ just like your, your stomach or your heart. And if your heart starts working wrong, you get a pacemaker or you take some medicine or you get some stents or you do an angioplasty or whatever, all those things that, that Christy knows all about and I don't, um, to, to make your heart work better. The brain is the same way. So I am not saying, and please do not hear me say, and don't go out saying, well, Michael just said you wouldn't be depressed if you prayed more. 
And that is not what I said. I said your spiritual, I will say that your spiritual depression is overcome by discipleship. Clinical depression is something else. Today, we look at what cures spiritual depression. 1 Kings 19, we'll talk about it. Now, where has Elijah been? Let's reflect on him for just a minute. Chapters 17 and 18 lead us up to that. First, back in chapter 17, he goes to Ahab, he announces a famine, says there's going to be a drought for three years, it's going to be horrible, just get ready. And the drought and the famine happen. So, I mean, he's a true prophet. He said something was going to happen, and it happened. There you go, that's the proof. He goes to this widow and asks her to make him some supper. She said, we were just getting together the last bit of flour and oil we had to make one little bitty cake. Then we were just going to die of starvation because that's all we have. You know it's a famine, right, Elijah? And Elijah would have been thinking, yeah, I I was the one that started it. I mean, because God told me to. I announced it. But he tells her, go ahead and make it. And you're not going to run out of oil or flour the entire time of the famine. And it happens. Later on, he raises maybe that widow's son. Maybe it was somebody else, probably that widow's son. There's some debate. Who cares? He raises a son from the dead. That's pretty cool. That doesn't happen every day. Even to the best of prophets, they don't get to do that all the time. Then beginning of chapter 18, he announces that it's the end of the drought. Now, three years have passed. The, the drought is coming to an end. He goes and he calls the prophets of Baal together. He calls Israel up and says, time for you to choose who you are going to serve. And we talked about last week the the test that he put for Baal and for God. Baal failed. God surpassed. He leaves there. He goes and tells Elijah, rain's coming. He goes, I mean, he goes and tells Ahab, rather. The rain's coming, he goes out uh, to the cliff, he, he prays, tells his servant, what do you see, clouds? He prays up a storm. Y'all imagine what would happen if we would pray up a storm. Not Laura, a different storm, a better storm, a storm of God's working. He prays up a storm, Ahab rides off, Elijah runs faster than a chariot, runs in front of him, the horses are fast, and Elijah's faster. All this in about three years. Elijah has had victory after victory after victory after victory. Proof after proof after proof that God was God. He was God's prophet. That what God said was true. That his presence was there. His, his perseverance with his, and patience with his people was, were there. That he was going to do something great. That revival was possible. They get to the, the, the precipice, the cusp of revival. Everybody says, yes. Ahab says, boy, yeah, I guess you're right. And Jezebel says, no, I'm going to kill you. And everything falls out. And Elijah's done. And he runs. And he hides. And we want to say, Elijah, what the heck, man? Do you not know what happened over your past three years? Yes, he did. And that's why the depression, that's why the fall was so hard. Because he did know better than any of us what God had done over those three years. And then suddenly it looked like it was worthless. It was pointless. 
It was wasted. Let's read. Starting at the beginning of chapter 19, we're going to read everything. Ahab told Jezebel everything that Elijah had done and how he had killed all the prophets with the sword. So Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah saying, May the gods punish me and do so severely if I don't make your life like the life of one of them by this time tomorrow. I'll give one, Jezebel one thing here. At least she was honorable enough to sign the note that she sent to Elijah. Verse 3, Then Elijah became afraid and immediately ran for his life. When he came to Beersheba that belonged to Judah, he left his servant there. But he went on a day's journey into the wilderness. He sat down under a broom tree and prayed that he might die. He said, I've had enough. Lord, take my life, for I am no better than my father's. Then he lay down and slept under the broom tree. Suddenly an angel touched him. The angel told him, get up and eat. Then he looked, and there at his head was a loaf of bread baked over hot stones and a jug of water. So he ate and drank and lay down again. Then the angel of the Lord returned for a second time and touched him. He said, get up and eat, or the journey will be too much for you. So he got up, ate, and drank. Then on the strength from that food, he walked 40 days and 40 nights to Horeb, the mountain of God. He entered a cave there and spent the night. And here is our focus for this morning. Suddenly, the word of the Lord came to him, and he said to him, What are you doing here, Elijah? He replied, I have been very zealous for the Lord God of armies, but the Israelites have abandoned your covenant, torn down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword. I alone am left, and they're looking for me to take my life. Then he said, God said, Go out and stand on the mountain in the Lord's presence. At that moment, the Lord passed by. A great and mighty wind was tearing at the mountains and was shattering cliffs before the Lord, but the Lord was not in the wind. After the wind, there was an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. After the earthquake, there was a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire, there was a voice, a soft whisper. When Elijah heard it, he wrapped his face in his mantle and went out and stood at the entrance of the cave. Suddenly, a voice came to him and said, What are you doing here, Elijah? I've been very zealous for, for the Lord God of armies, he replied, but the Israelites have abandoned your covenant, torn down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword. I alone am left, and they're looking for me to take my life. Then the Lord said to him, Go and return by the way you came to the wilderness of Damascus. When you arrive, you are to anoint Hazael as king over Aram. You are to anoint Jehu, son of Nimshi, as king over Israel. And Elisha, son of Shaphat, from Abel-Meholah, as prophet in your place. Then Jehu will put to death whoever escapes the sword of Hazael. And Elisha will put to death whoever escapes the sword of Jehu. But I will lose 7,000 in Israel, every knee that has not bowed to Baal, and every mouth that has not kissed him. Elijah left there and found Elisha, son of Shaphat, as he was plowing. Twelve teams of oxen were in front of him, and he was with the twelfth team. Elijah walked by him and threw his mantle over him. Elisha left the oxen, ran to follow Elijah, and said, Please let me kiss my father and mother, and then I will follow you. Go on back, he replied, for what have I done to you? So he turned back from following him, took the team of oxen, and slaughtered them. 
With the oxen's wooden yoke and plow, he cooked the meat and gave it to the people, and they ate. Then he left, followed Elijah, and served him. It's just a mess for most of that chapter. We see as we move through the narrative, we we see this progression of Elijah reaching his lowest point and God reaching down to pull him back up. It's interesting how he does it. We're going to get to that toward the end, but I don't want to spoil the fun. The first thing we see in verses 1 through 5 is defeat snatched from the jaws of victory. That fire fell. That was a thing. There were people of Israel who turned back to God. Even Ahab, no matter how briefly, acknowledged, man, Baal lost. Ahab acknowledged his ancestry, how he was supposed to have been raised before he followed other gods. All that was real. That, was, that, that happened. God proved himself. God had brought the rain back. God had ended the famine. And from that victory, Elijah was able to find defeat. Gets the death threat from Jezebel. Gets the, the messenger comes to him and said, I won't kill you, just know. Kind of odd that she would advertise that. Why not just send somebody to kill him? But isn't it more fun to annoy people, to, to scare them, to do the work of Satan by being a thorn in their side? That's what she was doing. And Elijah, because of this, takes it to heart. And now he thinks his ministry is over. He is done. He goes out and he prays, I've had enough. Lord, kill me. I, I just don't want to do this anymore. I'm thinking, you just, you just apply for another job. But no, Elijah is done. If, if, if he cannot serve the Lord, he doesn't want to do anything. And in his mind, it is clear he cannot serve the Lord. In this, I think, there is a lot of self-blame. He thinks it's his fault that revival didn't come. He did what he was supposed to do. He followed the Lord's will, and yet it didn't bring revival. So he thinks... Forget it. I, I'm, I am no good at this. I, I, I have, I'm no better than my father's. I'm, he, I, I've had it. Kill me. He sees retribution instead of revival. He sees attacks rather than worship. He sees anger instead of joy. God showed up and people got mad about it. I think there's probably a sermon right there, but I'll just let you think on that. Defeat from the jaws of victory in verses 1 through 5. 5a, actually. Verses 5b through 8a, we see a nap and a snack. It's amazing how life gets better after a nap and a snack. I love naps. I'm a big fan of them. And I I clearly like snacks too. 
He lays down to sleep, and then suddenly an angel touches him. Who knows how long he's been asleep? He's hoping he's going to die in his sleep. I mean, that's the preferred way to go, right? Suddenly an angel touches him and tells him, get up and eat. And look, there's this fresh bread. Remember, it's been a famine. And uh, a jug of water. There's been a drought. So, I mean, just, just the very miracle itself of being fed in the wilderness by an angel, but the angel producing something that the land doesn't have. Also note where he is at this point. If you don't know Bible geography very well, and, and most of you got maps in the back of your Bible, those are very helpful. I encourage you to, to look at them a lot because I love maps. He has left Israel. He's a prophet in Israel, the northern kingdom. He has gone through the southern kingdom of Judah. Beersheba is the very southern border of the southern kingdom, and he's gone a day's walk into the wilderness. He is getting just as far away as he thinks he can, especially from Jezebel. She's not going to come through Judah to get him, and then probably certainly not going to go into the wilderness to find him. He's running just as far as his mind can take him. We might remember another prophet who did something similar. Jonah was told to go this way, and so in obedience he went that way. I'm sorry, in disobedience that way. I want you to go to Nineveh. Hey, I'm going to Spain, man. It's basically what Elijah's doing. He is called to be a prophet to the northern kingdom, so he goes to the wilderness south of the southern kingdom. says, I'm done. I was obedient. Didn't work. I don't want to do it anymore. Kill me now. And God shows up. And God has plenty to rebuke Elijah for. There are a number of things he could cover. He has not been told to leave. He's not been told to do anything as far as we know at this point. And yet Elijah's making all these decisions for himself. But before he rebukes, before he gets into the uh, disciplinary stage, he refreshes him. Elijah, eat and take a nap. Hey, Elijah, wake up. Eat some more. Take another nap. You've got a job to do. But you're going to have to be physically ready to do it. There's something else that's going on here. There's, there's this spiritual letdown, but there's this ad adrenaline letdown, something very physical, very uh, hormonal going on. He has been, let's just go back a few days, a, a few weeks, the, the, the running in front of the chariot. He's not a young guy. The running in front of the chariot, the, 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 the confrontation on Mount Carmel. Those are all physically and, and emotionally demanding. Not just spiritually demanding, but, but, but physically and emotionally demanding. He has been living on this adrenaline of what God is doing. I don't think you kill a few hundred prophets of Baal and just do it kind of nonchalantly. Eh, no big deal. Stab. Lop off your head. Eh, eh. You know, th this, is, this is big. And so he is coming to, y'all know when you, when you almost get in a car wreck, like somebody pulls out in front of you or 
you know, something happens and you jerk and, and you get that adrenaline rush and your legs hurt? You know, do y'all know what I'm talking about or is that just me? I don't see any heads moving, so yeah. That, that's what happens to me. That, that adrenaline, it, my legs hurt. They, they, they want to run. They, 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 it's the fight or flight, and apparently I'm always interested in flight. Because my legs are go, asking me, why are you still sitting here? Stupid. Elijah has been living on that mess. Constantly in fight or flight mode. He's got to go face Ahab and Jezebel the one who's not liked him forever. Ahab has called him the tormentor, the troubler of Israel. And Ahab, uh, Elijah has to stand in front of the king and says, oh, no, no, that's your title, fellow. You're, you're doing a little projection here. Um, he's been living on this adrenaline, and finally things are over, and he's probably thinking, I get to rest. Because, why? Because revival is coming. And no, it doesn't. So he's physically done. Just every part of him, emotions, intellect, spirit, body, wants to quit. And God says rest. Y'all, rest is spiritual. We go back to creation, seventh day, God rested. We find Jesus napping, sometimes in the most inopportune moments like you know middle of a storm on the sea of galilee in a boat and those but he rested he took naps he 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 ate he, he did the food stuff he he rest is spiritual do not underestimate rest for spiritual health it's, it's why i take vacations and it's why it's uh I, the staff is is very careful uh, to not call or text with what might be an issue during the week when, when we're on vacation. Because it's not restful if, if I'm having to make decisions about some crisis or, or, or kind of crisis that's going on. I mean, if it's a big deal, certainly I want to know, but there are a lot of times when it isn't. And they're very careful to protect me from that. And, and, and me from them when, when they are on vacation. Because we need to be able to unplug, decompress, and recharge. And that's what he is doing here. It's what God is doing for Elijah with a nap and a snack. And the angel says, The journey will be, or eat, uh, get up and eat, or the journey will be too much for you. So he got up in verse 8 and drank, he got up, ate, and drank. Then on the strength from that food, he walked 40 days and 40 nights to Horeb, the mountain of God. He entered a cave there and spent the night. Why did he go to Horeb? Why did he make this 40-day and 40-night walk? Obviously, the angel knew what was coming. God had told him because God knows what's coming. We just don't have a record of God saying, hey, Elijah, go to Horeb. I tend to believe, based on the questions, uh, the question God asks, that, that Horeb was Elijah's idea. Here, I'm going to feed you, God says. I'm going to get you ready, because I know you're about to do this. But that's okay, because you're going to learn some things when you get there. 
But Elijah wanted, needed to go on a search for confirmation. And that's the third thing we see in the narrative, a search for confirmation. Maybe I'm wrong. Maybe God called him, told him to go to Horeb, and Elijah just didn't see the need to record that. But again, the question seems to, to lead us to believe, not that God was wondering or confused or didn't know something, but was wanting him to think about what he had done. And Elijah goes to Horeb. Now, what's special about Horeb? The mountain of God, it, it, it calls it here in the passage. And if you just stop there, then that's interesting. But why? And, and most of y'all probably already know. Uh, I had to look it up and be sure I was right. That's the mountain that Moses met God in the burning bush on. It's, it's the call. It's the call mountain. Elijah is going to get confirmation, going to search for confirmation for his call. I, I know I've told you this before, but one of the first things that they taught us in church planting training before we planted the church in Houston, in northeast Houston, was always go back to the call. Because they knew we were going to experience spiritual dis, uh, depression. They knew there was going to be failure. And there may be spectacular failure. There may be spectacular mountaintops. But they knew you were going to question, maybe on a daily basis, your call. Did God really call us to do this? And we had to do that a lot. Because in case you don't remember, our church plant failed. It, it didn't take off. It no longer exists. So we had to regularly go back to that call and say, why is it failing if this is what God called us to do? Well, let me go back to the call. Are we even right that we should be here? We had to ask ourselves, what are you doing here, Michael and Etta? And every time we would say, we're obeying the call. And then God would say, then continue to obey the call. That doesn't change at any point in ministry, in case you're curious. When you go from three months of the highest attendance to the worst offering, you begin to question the call. God, why did you call me to sulfur for that? Why have we gone through what we have gone through? Interestingly enough, today is the sixth anniversary of my preaching in view of a call, like this very day. Six years ago, uh, July 17th, 2016. I had no doubt about my call here. I've also told you this before, I think. We had the, I had the first phone interview with Lee Bird back in May, early May, I think. And I had a, a Facebook group of friends who were praying for me through the transition from Nixon to wherever I went. And after I had that phone call with Lee, I wrote in that Facebook group. I'm not sure Lee knows it yet, or the rest of the committee knows it yet. But I believe God's calling me to First Baptist Sulphur. 
I said, I could be wrong. I'm not Elijah. I'm no prophet, but I've been wrong before, but I believe this is where we're supposed to go. And I've never really doubted it since. But there are days I don't pray to die. I'm not that bold and brave. But I do say, Lord, is this where you want me? And he says, did I call you? Yes, sir. Have I called you to do something else? No, sir. There's your answer, boy. We search for confirmation. Elijah was searching for confirmation. Lord, you called me to be your prophet, to lead your people, to call your people to repentance. And you know what I got for it? A death threat. I preached your word. I did what you told me to. We saw some incredible things happen and a death threat. The church didn't grow at all. All I got was threats and notes from people that didn't like me. And God says to Elijah, did I call you? Did I tell you to stop? No, sir. And God doesn't say it that way. He asks Elijah a question, and and he asks the same question twice. The first time, though, it's a question of purpose. God asks Elijah, what are you doing here, Elijah? Now, this is why I don't think God told him to go to Horeb. I think this was Elijah searching for answers, and he thought, oh, I'll go where Moses got his call. And God says, what are you doing here, Elijah? He replied, I've been very zealous for the Lord God of armies, but the Israelites have abandoned your covenant, torn down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword. I alone am left, and they are looking for me to take my life. Wah, wah, wah. And that sounds harsh, but I have to do that to myself a lot of times. They, they don't like me, and they just said this, and they, they, they don't like that, and they send the notes, and they do it, and even wah, 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 Lord. I'm the only one left. Bull. There are a lot of us left. And God asks the question, what are you doing here? Why are you on the mountain, my mountain? Why, why are you, why are you a, a kingdom, a kingdom, a, a day's walk, and a 40 days walk away from where I told you to be? See, God was making clear in this question of purpose that this was not Elijah's calling. I didn't call you to this. I didn't call you to die. I didn't call you to give up. I didn't call you even necessarily to see the revival. I called you to be faithful. I called you to do what I told you to do. I called you to call the people to repentance. I called you to preach my word. I called you to set up the altar and pray for fire, and it fell. You did what you were supposed to. That's all you're supposed to do is what you are supposed to do. And being out here, number two, isn't where you should be. What are you doing here, Elijah? How are you going to tell my people what they should and shouldn't be doing in Israel from the mountain of God somewhere in 
Saudi Arabia, or Midian at this point? How are you going to do? It's a long way, fella. Better be happy there ain't a fish anywhere. I put you in his belly, send you back that way. What are you doing here, Elijah? Why are you praying to die? Did I say you were done? Did I say it was over? Did I say that you had fulfilled your calling? Now you get to die. No, I decide when people die and when they don't. I'm the one that gets to decide when careers are over and when they're not. I'm I'm the one that gets to decide when you get to retire from ministry. By the way, you don't get to retire from ministry. I'm the one that makes those decisions. What are you doing here, Elijah? See, Elijah is done with his purpose. Elijah has no question of purpose. He doesn't care what his purpose is anymore. He's done with it. And God says, "Mm mm-mm. And we see a quiet revival. Verses 11 through 13a. Let me back up for just, well, no, I'll, I'll get that in a minute. Verse 11, then he said, go out and stand on the mountain in the Lord's presence. Notice the sequence here. I've always had in my mind when I play this movie in my head, that the Lord says, go out and stand in my presence. And, and Elijah goes out and he sees all this stuff and kind of in the middle of it. The way it reads is, God says, go out and stand on the mountain in the Lord's presence. At that moment, before he ever took a step out on the mountain where he's just been told to go, There's a great and mighty wind tearing up the mountain and shattering cliffs. You know what kind of wind it has to be to break rocks? Shattering cliffs. He hadn't even gone out yet. But the Lord was not in the wind. See, go out and stand in my presence. Now wait and see when my presence shows up. Go out and stand in my presence, uh, Elijah. Whoosh, whoosh, crack, boom, 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 boom. And Elijah wonders, is that God's presence? Well, the whirlwind passes. God wasn't there. The Lord was not in the wind. After the wind, there was an earthquake. God, you done broke the rocks some. Why are you going to break them some more? But the Lord was not in the earthquake. After the earthquake, there was a fire. Elijah has not moved yet. He's still in the cave. He entered a cave there and spent the night. God meets him in the cave. See, we, I, I've always thought he met him outside and all the stuff. No, God comes to the cave. <whistles> what are you doing in here? Come out and meet me. Whirlwind, earthquake, fire. You ever try to get a scared dog out from under a house? Or a car or a cat out of the motor? All the noise, right? That's the way to do it. Break things, yell, throw stuff, shake everything. That's going to get them out. Maybe just into something else. And that's what God does. 
And Elijah realizes God doesn't just show up in, in miracles. He doesn't show up in the big things. I mean, he does, but he doesn't just. Right? That's what we want. God, show us your presence. And he says, I did. But you want something major. You want to show. I want you to hear me. I want you to trust me. And I want you to obey me. No huge miraculous event, not in the whirlwind, not in the earthquake, not in the fire. No pyro, no special effects. After the fire, there was a soft whisper, a voice. When Elijah heard it, he wrapped his face in his mantle and went out and stood at the entrance of the cave. Elijah knew intuitively. He's a prophet of God, right? He's not in all the big stuff this time. He was on Carmel. He was with the flour and the oil. He was in the raising the, 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 the widow's son. He was in the drought. He was in the praying up a storm. He was in all those big things. This time, though, he's not in the big things. This time, he's in this little thing. He's back in the cave. God says, come out. Does, when, you, when you hear my voice, when you hear me call you, come out. Boom, fire, flames. Quiet revival. Just God's presence. The best refresher, naps and snacks are great. The best refresher is God's word. That's why I am so refreshed from the Southern Baptist Convention. As we talked about last Sunday night in our Q&A, I know it's crazy that I get excited about a two-day business meeting but the preaching, the worship, the send celebration for the international missionaries, the pastor's conference the day and a half before that, which is just preaching and worship and preaching and worship, it's not just the getting away snacks, lots of snacks, and eh, sleep, that's iffy, but we do rest eventually. But it's God's word. It's God's presence. See, a quiet revival comes from discipling believers. And I don't mean you discipling believers because, yes, that's part of it. But I mean you as believers discipling yourselves, individuals daily in God's word for personal growth. Discipling believers, those are a quiet revival. And that may be, and I dare say is, as important as anything else and as much as anything else, what our church needs a quiet revival of a discipled believer in every home and heart, in every church member. He goes out of the cave, stands at the entrance, and a voice came to him and said, What are you doing here, Elijah? No longer a question of purpose, now it's a question of power. You've seen it all, Elijah. Whirlwind, earthquake, fire, small voice. Am I, am I any less God in any of those? The answer is no. 
So it's not a question of power, is it? We've established your call. I'm here, you're here, Mountain Horeb. We got it. I'm speaking not from a burning bush, because I think you kind of wanted that. Instead, it's the breeze, the small voice. I'm speaking to you, Elijah. So this, this question of power, I'm bigger than your concerns, Elijah. I'm bigger than your, your worries. I'm bigger than your, your, the, the threats to your ministry or to your life. You're never going to make the Jezebels happy. Don't try. I will take care of the Jezebels, and he's going to tell them how he's going to take care of them eventually. Elijah won't be around to see that, if I remember my timeline correctly. I'm bigger than your concerns. You just be obedient to me. The task is what's important, Elijah. Not your idea of results. Not what you think it's supposed to look like when you get done doing what I told you to do. Your success is your obedience. Not any other metric that you can come up with. Nothing on paper. Nothing in seats. That's not the metric the measure of obedience, or the measure of success. The measure of, of success is, are we obedient? If we are obedient, we are successful. So it's not a question of power. I'm, I'm bigger than all of that. It's not a question of task. You know what it is, and it's extremely important. And it's not a question of my presence. Yes, I was in the fire that fell on Carmel. But I am also in this small voice that's talking to you right now. I'm in the little things, Elijah. I am especially in the time you spend with me in prayer and in my word. God never leaves us alone. And if he never leaves us alone, we always have his power. And if we always have his power, we are always equipped for the task. And if we always are equipped for the task, then we always have the task to do. And if we always have the task to do, we never get to quit and say, I'm done. Because he is the one that says when we're done. And he said, we ain't done. And we see, and now we get to the title of the message this morning, a renewal of faith. We want our renewal of faith to be the fire to the altar. Whoosh. Or the whirlwind, or the, well, not, no hurricanes, please. Or the, 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 the earthquake. We're not fancy on those either. We don't get them a lot around here. Not, we don't think, one thing. But you know what? If we could get the fire, God's presence, we'd probably take those. I've told you before, I'd take another hurricane if it would continue to unite and grow us. Because I saw it. And I'm worried that we've gotten comfortable already. But God says, First Baptist Sulphur, to renew your faith, you don't need another hurricane. You need a quiet revival of believers, of church members, discipling through my word and prayer. And then we will get a renewal of faith. A renewal of faith that God is over the hills and plains. If you kept reading, you read in the next chapter where uh, Ben Haddad, yeah, Ben Haddad of Aram shows up and says, Oh, well, we couldn't beat Israel in the hills because God's a God of the hills, but we're going to take them all in, in the plains because God, he probably isn't a God of the plains. Turns out God's a, hill, uh, God's a God of the hills and the plains. 
It's all, it's all his. So wherever we find ourselves, the hills or the valleys, the mountaintops or the depths, he's there. We have a renewal of faith that God is faithful to his call. Did he call you here? Did he put you here? Does he have a job for you to do? Then unless he has said, don't do that job, let's go back to experiencing God one more time. We do the last thing God told us to do until he tells us to do something different. And if he hasn't told you anything to do a different Elijah, keep doing what he told you to do. God is faithful to his call. Why aren't you faithful to his call? Faith, a renewal of faith that God is faithful to his church. He's never left us. He never will leave us. Could you move forward two clicks, please, Pat? He never will leave his church. His church can leave him, but he will never leave his church. The lampstand is only removed when the church has gotten so far away from God that he was not there to anyway. A renewal of faith that God is faithful to his people. God cares what you're going through, just like he cares what our church is going through, just like he cares that we are obedient to his call. We can have a renewal of faith. And I believe it happens when we have a quiet revival. See, faith and obedience are a long game. I read the, the rest of the chapter where God tells him, you're going to anoint a new king in Aram, you're going to anoint a, a new king in uh, uh, Judah, right? Uh, did I turn my page? Israel, yeah, Jehu in Israel, one of the few good kings of Israel. And you're going to anoint uh, a successor. Elijah, future kings are going to do the work that I've called them to do, that's going to continue the work I've called you to do, but you're not going to necessarily see the end. I'm going to call you a successor, a friend, a companion. Remember, he left his last servant, his last companion in Judah. Uh, he went the day's journey, then 40 days. So he's been without a friend, a companion, a helper for 41 days. And he says, you're going to call somebody else, a, 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 not just a servant and a friend and companion, but someone who's going to take the mantle from you and lead. You're, you may not see the end. But I am faithful, Elijah. I am faithful. God is faithful. When the people aren't, I am faithful. When you are forgetful, or unfaithful, Elijah, I am faithful. A renewal of faith, a revival, a renewal of faith will lead to a faith that God is faithful to save. The last point. Elijah wanted to die, and God said, nope, I'm going to save you. Most people who are searching, don't want to die, but they're going to anyway. And God says, I'm faithful to save from death. We serve a God who promises to save anyone who will call on him. Anyone who will trust Jesus for salvation, God will save them. That means anyone. And that is such 
a hard concept. I'm not too far from God to be saved? No. And you're thinking, but I. I don't care. No. God is faithful to save. Come all who are weary or heavy laden, and I will give you rest. If any would call on the name of the Lord, and they will be saved. This morning, you can have a complete renewal of life. Believer, you can have a renewal of faith. You might be in the valley. You might be like Elijah saying, I'm done with this. And God is saying, what are you doing here? Your renewal of faith will come in uh, time with the Lord, in his word and in prayer. A quiet revival. But non-believer, unbeliever, you've never trusted Jesus, you can have faith this morning. Faith that will save. Romans 6.23 tells us, The wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. You can be saved. New life. A new creature. Not what you were. And the truth is, sometimes life without Christ, let me back up, life with Christ sometimes gets to the point where we say we're done. How much worse is life without Christ? And to be done then is an eternity away from him. But to go through life knowing that we have a God who daily will give us a quiet revival. That's joy. That's purpose. And that's peace. And you can have that today if you will just trust Jesus as your Savior and follow him. Pray with me. Father, thank you for the quiet revivals. Lord, we, we want and we think we have to have the big things, the fire and the whirlwinds and the earthquakes. And when those things don't result in what they think or what we think they should result in, we just wonder, what the heck? Why, why are we bothering? And I believe that's because we're not spending time with the still small voice. We're looking for the next Mount Carmel experience and you want us to get on Mount Horeb and spend time with you. Have our call renewed. A new purpose like you gave Elijah. You got work to do. I'm not done with you. And a new confidence that no matter what we see or don't see as the end result of our calling and of our obedience, you've got all of that mapped out. Our one requirement is to be faithful. May we be faithful. And when, when we are done, when we are spent, and we no longer want to be faithful, renew our faith with a quiet revival. Lord, if someone's listening who's never trusted Jesus as Savior, I pray for a very vocal revival in their lives where you save them and they publicly profess and proclaim that salvation through baptism in two weeks or right now as they come forward 
to tell folks, I've trusted Jesus as my Savior. Lord, we pray that you would do what you call success this morning in this place, whatever that looks like, as long as we are obedient. In Jesus' name, amen. So you have a next step to take this morning. Maybe you need to accept salvation through Jesus Christ. Maybe you need to be baptized in two weeks. If you want to be baptized, we can have another new members class next week, another discovery class. We can do it as many times as we need to. Uh, Sean Moore went through it this morning. He's one of the ones that will be baptized next week. Maybe you need to conform your life to Christ. You need a quiet revival in your own life. Submit to God. Join his church. Whatever he's doing in your heart this morning, share that with us today. Let us know about it. Maybe you need some, need some prayer. I will be up here to my right. Chelsea will be up here to my left if you'd like somebody to pray with you. Kirk, one of our deacons, will be in the back to pray with you. Maybe you just want to come up here and lift it to the Lord privately. Whatever you need to do this morning, listen to that voice. I don't think there's going to be a whirlwind, an earthquake, or fire. But God is going to speak to you this morning if you'll just listen. So let's stand and worship and listen to him this morning.